and welcome to the Investec Alternative Fund Administration teleconference. Please note the contents of this call is not for wider media circulation. It also does not constitute financial advice. I will now hand you over to your host, Michael Donnelly, to begin today's conference. Thank you. Annika, thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the call. Uh, I'm Michael Donnelly, Investec Support Services Analyst. Uh, why have we arranged a call to discuss alternatives fund administration? Well, three reasons in summary. Firstly, the small number of listed fund admin companies have so far outperformed the market by about 15% on average since COVID turned the market back in February. Uh, secondly, the alternatives market is big, but it's not particularly widely understood. So private equity funds, hedge funds, infrastructure, real estate are worth collectively some $14 trillion dollars according to PwC, and alternatives, interestingly, were the only asset class that showed any sequential portion quarter growth in uh, BlackRock's uh, revenue progression at their Q1 results last month. And finally, Investec has a long history of both advising uh, on and lending to fund management, uh, fund, fund admin companies across the sector, across multiple geographies and jurisdictions. Now, we are fortunate today to have three speakers this afternoon who each run leading providers in administering and in advising on alternative assets. We've got the CEOs of Sun, of MG Hudson, and the finance director of Accorian. So, Martin Schneier runs Sun, which administers over 250 billion sterling of assets and grew organically last year at over 12%. Sun is the number two outperforming stock in the entire support services sector since the market began to fall in February of this year. Martin, could we begin, please, by asking you to share your thoughts on the alternatives asset space and why it's an exciting one for investors? Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. And a warm hello to everybody uh, on the call. Um, I'm Martin Schneier. I'm the CEO of uh, Sound Group PLC, as, as Michael said. Uh, we're a fund admin um, shop that has around 18 people across 20 offices worldwide, and we've been listed on the main market in London since 2015. Um, as our business now comprises around 93% um, alternatives fund admin, I thought, um, and I'm glad to help uh, talk about the alternatives market, certainly from our perspective and what we're seeing um, generally, but also what's been happening during COVID-19, which I'm sure is an, an area that people would like to know. I think if we start with the macro picture, um, and we, we've talked about this before, so for those of you who've heard it, um, you know, apologies, but I think it's important to get the context. I think the demand for alternatives um, has really grown strongly over the last 10 years in particular, 10 to 12 years since the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. And really that does represent a very good reference point as we go through today uh, when looking at some of the learning points for COVID-19. And that's because market dislocation is always a major issue for some asset managers, but equally, it's a great opportunity for others. So I think overall estimates at the moment um, for closed-ended alternatives gives AUM somewhere around the seven and a half trillion US dollars uh, level, and that represents sort of 10% growth just in 2019 alone. And uh, the expectation continues to be somewhere around you know 14 trillion, as, as Michael referenced, uh, over the next few years. Uh, despite that being kind of a pre-COVID thought. Um, private equity, uh, which includes venture capital, buyout firms, growth funds, that still remains the largest category. Real assets and infrastructure 
next largest, uh, and followed then by the fast-growing private credit category, which really took off following uh, the 2008 global financial crisis when traditional lending solutions dried up. Now, what have the key drivers been uh, over the last sort of 10 to 15 years? I think investor returns from private assets in the U.S. and Europe have been better than public equity performance, uh, as much as pains me to say that. Um, you know, resilience that we saw certainly post the financial crisis in 2008 um, in the portfolios has been something that many funds um, experience good vintages on and we'll be looking again, depending on how long COVID-19 and the implications of that go on, uh, we'll be looking for that resilience again. I think for investment diversification, um, investors have moved allocations away from traditional fixed income and equity investments into alternatives. Regulation, of course, uh, some of the financial institutions have not been able to continue some activities uh, in the investment areas that they were participating in. That's created an opportunity for alternative asset firms uh, to take their place. And look, just like the fund administration market, which is consolidating, uh, I think scale um, and growth and, and the size of your platform has become very important. Um, the larger and the more institutional the alternative asset managers have become. So, you know, let's turn to what we've been seeing during the COVID-19 pandemic. As I say, the 2008 financial crisis is certainly a good reference point in many respects, but it is early days and, you know, we won't see the full picture about COVID-19 and its effects for some time. To highlight that point, in 2008, you know, we saw quite a few limited partner defaults uh, and really the growth in the secondaries markets. To date, we haven't seen that yet, and it is early days, and that those kind of things could still come. In the early part of the pandemic, there was definitely a pause in the market as people tried to really make sense of what was going on. I think those who were invested in aviation or leisure uh, and those kinds of assets certainly bore the brunt, uh, whilst others, if you were certainly in technology stocks uh, and things like that, uh, have done quite well uh, looking back on it. A lot really now depends on how long this is going on. And certainly what we've seen in our business, uh, a lot of the Asia-Pacific offices are coming back online. People are returning uh, to work. They are clearly doing that at social distancing, but uh, it's kind of feeling like a, a return to normal. From a fundraising perspective, uh, amongst our clients, you know, we've seen the larger asset managers continuing to fundraise, with some of them actually closing record fund size levels. Uh, in other cases, we've seen some of them just delaying closings, but certainly none of them have mothballed any plans. I think those managers who are less well-established, uh, you know, fundraising via Skype or indeed teleconference like this, um, I think that presents practical issues, and that's certainly slowed uh, progress for them. You know, this is still very much uh, a market that thrives in relationships, and, you know, these aren't well-established. I think it's very difficult for investors to commit to funds that they don't know. Um, some of the themes that we've seen definitely suggest opportunistic investment is at the forefront of some of these new fundraisers. Uh, this includes the likes of the distressed debt funds that we saw um, being involved in sort of 2009, 2010, uh, as well as value trades within private equity and real estate. We haven't yet seen liquidity issues that we saw in 2008, 2009. Um, and the significant requests from asset managers for capital calls from investors have been well documented in this regard. 
part of the reason for that, you know, people are looking to shore up portfolio companies uh, in the expectation they might have to do some follow-on investments. Uh, otherwise, they're looking to take on some of those opportunistic deals that they see. In terms of activity in portfolios, you know, we are seeing a lot of activity within our debt portfolio. I think a lot of this is in established deals where, because of the circumstances, there might be technical defaults, for example, where the FCA have allowed companies to extend their reporting timelines uh, and therefore people go into technical default under covenants, uh, as well as some actual covenant breaches where, you know, clearly some industries, as I said, have been impacted far worse than others. Uh, we've seen some refinancing plans being implemented and some restructurings of facilities already being in place. Quite a number of those clearly, you know, affect the leisure and travel industry, as well as real estate finance, owing to kind of uncertainty around tenant rental payments, waivers to process and covenant breaches. Real estate itself has slowed quite a bit. Um, people have stopped looking at new property deals generally. And of course, we saw construction disruption uh, with government advice uh, not, not allowing for people to return to work until a certain date. Rental uncertainty, as I said, uh, as well as uncertainty around valuations because there has not been an effective market. And certainly, if you've seen in the um, homeowners market, we've seen a lot of those transactions just completely fall off a cliff. That said, we're still seeing, uh, you know, as recently as yesterday, some of the clients looking to raise funds now uh, to take advantage of expected investment opportunities post-COVID-19. The private equity market, uh, we've, we've seen quite a mixed bag, really. Some managers taking advantage of the conditions, um, others waiting to see. We have seen a lot of capital calls from managers, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, looking to ensure liquidity within um, their funds in case there are following requests from some of those portfolio um, assets, and then looking out for those opportunistic targets when they come about. I think in many cases, we've seen asset managers be more efficient around fund liquidity, for example, recycling of potential distributions uh, in exchange for making investments rather than paying cash flows out to investors. I think our key takeaway from this crisis so far has been that for any market participants, including us, of course, as a service provider, you really need to have a resilient platform. You know, business continuity planning uh, for everybody, I'm sure, is something that you do uh, because you have to. Um, and you test it because you have to, um, but hey, those plans have been found out and tested like never before. And I think the expectation is that you are able to carry out all of your functions regardless of the global lockdown. So clearly technology has proved to be essential. You know, you cannot participate in the market without being able to carry out those respective functions effectively. And now working remotely, we re relied heavily on technology. Communication certainly underpins all of that. Um, you know, our implementation and use of uh, Microsoft Teams, for example, has just been crucially important for us, uh, as well as not just internally, but dealing with the outside market as well. If you can't communicate, frankly, you're just not in the market. Importantly, data, data, data. This has really been a key element for all asset managers as they try and sort of ascertain their exposures around portfolios and see how they can shift things around um, if they can. And this is again something that we saw uh, from the 2008 financial crisis when people were less aware of such a shock uh, and really unsure of where they were standing uh, when the tide went out. 
And I think our investment in Cornwall has given us some further insights into that data analytics capability and requirements amongst clients. One other area that's been interesting, is, of course, has been um, our favorite KYC and AML requirements, you know, closing deals and closing funds um, remotely has been quite a challenge. And if you don't have sort of the right um, technology behind that and capability, it's almost impossible. This has, of course, it has been easier with larger institutions rather than working with individuals. Uh, and then most importantly for us, um, and I'm sure for all of you, has been ensuring the, the health and well-being of employees. I think that's been very important. Some other operational impacts that we've seen worth mentioning, I think uh, certainly consideration of improved cybersecurity requirements, given people's work from home environments, as well as their behaviors. And by that, I mean uh, people's guards are certainly down. Um, you know, we've kind of stepped up our phishing exercises internally to make sure that staff kind of, I wouldn't say are kept on their toes, but just making sure they continue to be aware where they're not in the office environment that, um, as you've seen reported in the press, we've seen an increase in the number of attempts of uh, phishing and the like. Confidentiality is another important one. You know, how do you how do you manage that? Um, you know, it's it's not unforeseen that you could have two people in the same household working um, on a deal from different sides, uh, or even working at competitive firms, things like that. I think is uh, is an interesting one to manage. Uh, and of course, people's mental health. Um, I think it really requires active attention and support throughout. I think motivating and ensuring productivity levels remain high too um, has been really at the forefront of, of what we've been trying to do, given people have childcare considerations uh, and, and things like that to look after. So the main message really from, from us has been, you know, you need a global platform. Um, you know, if I, if I look now just to kind of summarize what, what we may see post-COVID-19, it's early days, but, um, you know, we should acknowledge that the private markets are much more established than they were in 2008, 2009. This, this is significant because actually they will create a much larger pool uh, of resource for any kind of recovery, uh, and certainly there will be a much larger base for uh, the alternative industry to, to leverage off. I think similarly to 2008, we've seen opportunistic experts actively assessing possibilities. I know the FT reported Apollo looking at over 250 deals uh, at the time of writing uh, a few weeks ago. Um, we've already seen and would expect to see further funds extending their fund lives, so the maturity dates on typical seven to ten year life funds. Um, we're, we're looking at uh, some asset managers not wanting to enter into any forced selling uh, positions because of maturity dates, uh, and that's something we've already seen. And I think ESG is becoming more and more important. I think investors are more focused now on how companies have behaved and how they deal with the social impacts of COVID-19, but also not forgetting about commitments made before this around uh, ESG requirements um, pre-COVID-19. For me, communication and culture are completely fundamental for internal as well as external stakeholders. I think two more points then, just to end with, I think we've seen companies already talking about publicly changing their uh, office footprints, uh, as the likes of Twitter have obviously been on the, uh, the broad end of that. Um, we've seen a mixed feeling internally. We've seen some people who are happy to work from home, tend to be more of the senior people, 
um, and actually from a, a social and an interactive uh, perspective, I think there's a lot of um, more of the younger members of staff who would like to be in the office, who enjoy the camaraderie and the physical interaction. So we still see a mix of that, and you know, I still think there will be room for changes to, to office footprints, no doubt. And then uh, what we've looked at seriously internally over the last few years and continuing to do is how we increase the attention around process efficiency and, of course, then introducing technology into those processes. Particularly when you work in remote, I think this is something that's very important. So, you know, broadly speaking, uh, technology, culture, communication have been absolutely critical from what we've seen. Um, and that, Michael, is a whistle-stop tour. Um, obviously happy to take some questions at the end. Uh, that is some of the experiences we've had and glad to share with you today. Martin, thank you so much for that. I was particularly interested in the uh, comments around the GFC comparison. Uh, Matthew Hudson, of course, founded his business, MG Hudson, in the wake of the, the global financial crisis around 2008, 2009, and he's written the leading textbook on fund administration. And uh, his business uniquely combines uh, an administration business with a complementary legal business. So, Matthew, could you please give us some thoughts on the alts market, in particular the legal challenges and opportunities that you see uh, for your clients. Yeah, sure. Good afternoon, all. Um, and uh, some very good words from Martin, which I concur with. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's interesting, the current crisis and comparing to the, uh, the previous crisis, the financial crisis, uh, MG Hudson was started from scratch in 2010, so in the midst of that crisis. Um, and we were formed around some long-term structural themes coming out of the crisis, which I think uh, are mostly applicable now, but I can comment during this about that. So those themes from our formation were, we believed that alternatives, because uh, like Martin's business, we are um, we're alternatives focused, uh, and most of our clients, nearly all of our clients, are alternatives. So we thought alternatives, which is private equity, venture capital, real estate, hedge, uh, credit, and so forth, would grow their AUM faster than mainstream coming out of the crisis. We thought private equity would refinance uh, out of the crisis in, in the GFC and, uh, in fact, get aggressive on the downside opportunities, just like, to Martin's point, Apollo are doing right now. We thought there would be a lot of spin-outs from banks. I mean, Citibank was a hedge fund in 2007 and run by a hedge fund guy, and these spin-outs would need an entire infrastructure uh, to operate. We thought there'd be enhanced regulation and compliance. We thought there'd be increased transparency, reporting, substance, and ESG. Uh, and we thought there'd be more outsourcing. Uh, Ten years ago, outsourcing in our space was still fairly nascent because historically fund managers have done their own admin and back office. So these are the themes of the time. Um, and our ambition was to build uh, the mid and back office uh, for fund management, as well as providing the advisory and analytical tools around it. Um, in some ways, we I, I look at the transformation of Ocado from a retailer into a technical infrastructure, and, and in many ways, MJ Hudson is a technical infrastructure. Um, so if I look at our three divisions, we have three parts of our business um, and comment on, Martin, uh, on uh, Michael's question. Um, so our first division is what we call advisory or design. So we have a law firm and an investment consultancy uh, which design funds and design portfolios 
Um, so we're the genesis of fun creation. We help write the story. And in many ways, our USP is our design, our USP in the admin and the administration space. The second division we have is outsourcing. So this is fund administration, corporate administration, but it's also, importantly, a, a large regulatory infrastructure for hire. So having helped write the funds or been the architect or the designer, we often become the plumber, if you wish, uh, on a long-term basis in the engine room of the fund. Uh, the fund administration is essentially part of the back office of a fund manager, whereas the, risk, the reg risk governance is the mid office. And then the third bit of what we do is data and analytics. So the advisory side helps build the fund. The outsourcing uh, division is the mid and back office. Uh, but the analytics side is more about the reporting on the fund. So benchmarking, uh, ESG, we bought an ESG reporting business last year in Holland, which is pretty significant part of what we do. And then this data then feeds back and helps our designers design better. Um, so essentially, we MJ Hudson is a, a holistic uh, one um, one client base uh, alternatives end-to-end offering uh, and infrastructure. Uh, so in terms of the current crisis, um, getting to the uh, text, big question, uh, the the themes which we saw from the GFSC are largely still intact. Um, most of our clients operate closed-ended funds. They're not marked to market as such, and the, the fees are on uh, committed capital. Um, and since the GFSC, we've seen, Martin mentioned this as well, managers consolidating, uh, getting bigger. Um, we've also seen, and I think this trend will continue, mainstream managers looking rather greedily at Blackstone, people like Blackstone and, and launching private funds offerings. Uh, we think the need to outsource will continue. And there's also going to be uh, more spin-outs again, um, like in the last crisis, uh, but this time more from fund managers um, uh, as their performance fees or their CAD interests goes underwater. And ESG, uh, which has been a growing theme, has been a little bit quiet for the last couple of months, clearly, um, but is still there, and uh, we see that as a, a growing theme. In terms of what we're seeing on our client side, you know, we have nearly a thousand clients in alternatives, so it's interesting to speak to all of them um, and their particular issues. Uh, Pride Equity, obviously, are grappling with uh, the winners and the losers in their portfolio. Uh, it's quite hard to um, own a restaurant business, for example, right now. Uh, venture Capital, uh, there's going to be some issues clearly in those portfolios. Uh, some of the recent rounds of finance have been more in convertible debt. Uh, private debt is rather similar to PE, uh, private equity. Um, some of the hedge funds have been doing um, better. Uh, they've, they've been groaning about lack of volatility or vol in the last few years, and they've certainly got some vol recently. Um, real estate and infrastructure, I agree with what Martin really said. I mean, if you, particularly on infrastructure, if you own airports or ports or toll roads or trains or, you know, clearly that's been... Uh, problematic. Um, so, Michael, you asked about legal issues. I mean, yeah, owning a law firm, we get to see funds early when they get formed. And there has been a, a bit of a delay on new fund launches. Uh, one of my clients said to me, well, how can I raise a new private equity fund if I can't meet any investors? And they won't give me any money unless I can meet them. Uh, clearly, if, if some of their existing investors from earlier funds re-up or reinvest, then 
that's easier. So there's been a bit of a hiatus on new fund launches, um, but they are brewing up again. Uh, secondaries, again, Martin touched on this, secondaries is difficult to price right now in portfolios. Um, we're working quite heavily on a lot of restructurings, fund restructuring, sidecars, uh, relocations. So we're keeping active, um, and frankly, we're very blessed to be working in an invisible industry. Um, we're, not ma we're not a manufacturer, uh, and working in a segment of asset management which is more insulated owned to the nature of their structure of their funds. Matthew, thank you. That's really, really useful. Um, Anthony Zermakopoulos is the finance director of Accorian, uh, which runs about $260 billion of assets across 20 locations and is owned by inflection. Now, Anthony was previously at TMF Group, which some of you may have met back in 2017. Anthony, could you give us your thoughts on the sector and perhaps the challenges around building out in different jurisdictions with multiple product lines. We've heard about the data and, and, and the, the challenges with the opportunities with that. But doing that across multiple jurisdictions, uh, it would be quite useful to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Michael. Um, hi, everybody. So, yeah, my name is uh, Anthony Zoramakoupas. Uh, it's quite a lot of, lot of letters going on there, so quite a mouthful. So I won't hold it against you if you can't pronounce my surname. Um, I'm the CFO of Aquarian. Uh, and Aquarian, so, um, you know, uh, some of you may have heard of us, uh, many probably not. Uh, we are uh, an alternative investments fund services corporate services provider. Uh, we've been owned by uh, Inflection uh, Private Equity since uh, 2016. Uh, and as Michael mentioned, we are in, in about 20 uh, jurisdictions around the globe. Um, I joined about a year ago. Um, and, you know, what a difference a year makes. Um, and the reason I say that is because if we, if we go back about a year, uh, Accorian was in about eight jurisdictions. And if you step a little bit further back in time, uh, we were in four. So, so the business has grown quite quickly um, uh, and geographically and, and intentionally so. Um, and so... Um, it's an important point on the jurisdictions and, and the expansion part because effectively, uh, in order to capture growth in particular product or service line, uh, you need to be in, in the relevant locations uh, where uh, you can provide the necessary services for that client. And actually what you see is when you look at our competitive landscape, so if you look at us, if you look at, you know, SANS and, uh, and other similar players in, in the industry, uh, yeah, we have different number of locations, but you will see some key overlapping ones, uh, and there are some common themes, and that's because those jurisdictions have specific regulatory and legislation uh, surrounding uh, the ability for particular structures to be put in place around alternative assets, funds, and so on. And, and being in so many locations, yeah, that brings, you know, it does bring quite a few challenges. But if you, if you look at the benefits, yeah, yeah, you have the normal ones of, you know, economies of scale, diversification benefits, uh, et cetera. But more importantly, uh, we have found, as we have grown, um, we are now able to provide more and new services to the existing clients that we have or had. And now it enables us to capture new clients that we weren't able to before. And we also benefit from 
different regulatory changes at different times in different locations. And by that, I mean uh, different regulators take a different view and approach to things like uh, rolling out economic substance or or CRS. So at different points in time, you're, you're able to actually roll that out to clients as a service at different points. So there's some fee generation that just continues uh, in the business. And, and how we've approached it, uh, we've approached it mostly through M&A in terms of the expansion. Uh, you know, you need to take the opportunities uh, when they arise. Uh, but we've also done some tactical greenfield startup operations as well, you know, where, you, where we hire some key talent or key uh, particular teams uh, um, to, to launch um, a specific fund, uh, fund service uh, in their sector uh, that they are uh, experts in. Both routes have their benefits and challenges. Um, we have found, of course, that you know greenfield is is probably arguably the more higher value add. But you know then you'll be what we have found is you'll be subscale for longer. Uh, you're not proven or known in the market. Uh, the regulator probably doesn't know you, uh, and also there are some onerous regulatory application processes uh, to actually get your licenses. I mean, there's sometimes it runs to nine, maybe sometimes even 12 months process. Uh, hence, M&A sometimes is preferred by, by people. Um, M&A, what we have found, of course, then you need to have the target that's available to buy. That's obviously the first step. But you need to make sure you're buying the right asset. Uh, and then, of course, you have to integrate the thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're a people business. And being more geographically spread, if you're buying something, uh, it makes that a little bit more challenging to ensure you're integrating. Um, and then if you have something like COVID-2019, uh, which we're currently experiencing, with an integration that we currently have in train, that adds to the complexity and, and the challenge uh, around, um, around an integration. But, you know, so being in those locations, however, is important for us. Um, so... And I'm not talking about being any specific location. Being, it's the combination that matters. And that effectively um, is basically uh, driven by where your clients are. And certain clients favor certain locations. Uh, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, a U.S. client usually would, you know, structure their funds or their CLOs probably through Cayman if they haven't chosen Delaware. So you theoretically should be in Cayman to capture those U.S. flows. European private equity funds, uh, they'd probably be in Jersey, Luxembourg, or Guernsey, uh, and then their corporate SPV surrounding those funds would probably be in a similar location in Europe, uh, probably similar to fund domicile. On the real estate side, we actually, that depends where the money's coming from. So again, you'd probably be in, in Jersey, Luxembourg, or Ireland. Um, I mean, we had a situation earlier in this year uh, before COVID came up, and we had a European uh, client who wanted a, a real estate asset, and they structured it through an Isle of Man unit trust with an English partnership. So we've been able to provide that service purely by being in those locations. And hence, from that perspective, it's important in being in the right locations uh, for uh, facilitating an ultimate client need. Now, with that, of course, lots of challenges come up. Um, especially in uh, in the current climate. So, uh, and to echo some of the some of the things that um, Martin and Matthew said, 
is yeah, you know, key obviously in, in, in a situation like, like this where you go into BCP and disaster recovery mode, you know, keeping your employees safe becomes a challenge, especially when you have 15 or 20 jurisdictions that you need to do that in. So central coordination is important, but also you need to be very, very agile because what we found under COVID-19 is different countries went into different forms of lockdown at different times. So trying to coordinate all of that was quite a big challenge. And the only way you can get that right is by, and again, to echo something Martin said, is your IT and your central IT and infrastructure and your platform is critical to ensure, number one, that your people are are safe. Yes, people can actually work and continue to work remotely. And then that continuous client touch point uh, to provide as, as seamless a service as possible. So, I mean, I will leave you with, uh, you know, with that, but just to say that it's, um, it is our sector and, you know, our business, but our sector is effectively driven to a large extent by, by regulation. And hence, different regulations in different countries or jurisdictions drive growth for us. Um, and that's because uh, clients make a decision of where they want to uh, invest from. Um, and hence, we follow those decisions. Michael, that's what I had to say. Andy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, could I ask the operator now to uh, curate the, uh, the questions? Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Please ensure your line remains unmuted locally. Peter Bate from Killick LLP. Please go ahead. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This could be a tricky question in terms of uh, commercial sensitivity and client sensitivity, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, I know both uh, MJ Hudson and Sarn have got data and analytics businesses, and I was just wondering, you know, have you noticed any trends in the data points and the analytics that the fund managers uh, are wanting to see right now? Um, yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, Matthew, you okay if I'm taking that first? Um, so I think, broadly speaking, it's really a an analysis by geography, an analysis by sector, um, analysis by currency. I think whilst all of this sounds really simple, I think you have to remember that a lot of the clients that we service have got thousands of investments. And so the way the data is extracted um, is very important to, to get a very quick picture and very accurate picture. So it's nothing out of the ordinary, uh, Peter, to, to be honest. It's just a question of how quickly you can get the information to, to the investors um, because the requests will be coming in from all over the place to the asset managers themselves, so from their investors. And, of course, then um, rather than going out to all the portfolio companies and where are they all exposed, et cetera, um, they're relying on the data that uh, a lot of companies like uh, Sam uh, and, and my fellow panelists well, you know, that is, that is where the data is coming from. So nothing out of the ordinary, nothing too sensitive, but it really is around exposures to, to various bits and pieces. Thanks. Yeah, just adding on to what, um, to what Martin just said. So, yeah, it's actually being, uh, Peter, increased, enhanced, I'd say, uh, in this crisis. Uh, so our analytics is mostly around reporting. So... Uh, investors, LPs, we call them, uh, want uh, reporting on time, if not earlier. Um, we also offer benchmarking tools, so uh, our clients are very interested right now in how they're doing it compared to others. 
because uh, that's what we do. We benchmark in a sort of top 100 uh, uh, anonymous. So they're very interested in the benchmarking side. Um, and ESG, which is our other major area on analytics, um, yeah, actually it's gone a bit quiet, frankly. I mean, it's still, it's not, I mean, it's very interesting debates as to are investors interested in sustainability anymore? Uh, they're more interested in um, their company staying alive. Uh, but uh, we, my view and all of our view at MJ Hudson is that's not going away, that, that trend. It's a, it's a major trend and will carry on. So, yeah, I think, uh, Peter, in answer your question, the simplest uh, sim- sort of simple line is they want more of it, yeah. Uh, they want more of it and they want it faster. Great. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. The next question is coming from the line of Bill Prue from Indus Financial. Please go ahead. Bill Prue, could you unmute yourself? Sorry, sorry about that. Um, just uh, interested in any thoughts the speakers might have in terms of how the industry might evolve uh, sort of longer term in terms of transformation to a sort of more of a digital asset uh, sort of world. Not just sort of cryptocurrencies, but more more generally sort of uh, the digitalization of asset types and securities. Uh, Michael, happy to take it if you want. Um, so, I think broadly we're seeing, um, you know, we, we, we see the customers and the, the clients of ours driving really the necessity of the service provision historically. And I think as Anthony mentioned, you know, we we generally take the lead from from those clients. What, what we're trying to do certainly at Sun is to kind of change that a little bit in terms of what we're looking to offer uh, in terms of the service capability um, and, and kind of thinking one step ahead to, to do that. Because actually, you know, we're not expecting to ever outsmart the, the asset managers in terms of looking for investments out there that will require administration uh, digitally. But, but just being able to go out there on the front foot and do that rather than being reactive. And I think, you know, generally speaking, our industry as a whole um, is further behind a lot of other industries, even um, the difference between, say, open and closed-ended funds. Um, the closed-end world is a lot further behind in terms of technology. Um, and that's really driven by you know, the, the, the asset managers themselves. So if I take a real estate asset manager, for example, um, a lot of what they do is you know, relationship-driven. Uh, the deals are rel- relatively few and far between. It's not kind of daily uh, daily investments. They're looking to assess a deal, do the due diligence, um, wrap up finances, etc. So the administration that follows uh, is relatively similar. So I think as the investment side of things changes, Bill, I think that's where we're going to see uh, the real evolution. Um, but at the moment, it's it's slow going. And I think as uh, Matt said, you know, people are very much concerned on keeping their uh, portfolios alive at the moment more than anything else. Yes, it's Matthew here. I think, um, uh, thanks Martin and also Bill, I, I think, uh, longer term is very interesting, this, this trend, uh, as alternatives, which has been somewhat dominated by institutional investors buying alternatives 
be it pension plans, endowments, sovereigns, and family offices. As it goes more towards retail, which it's, you know, Jobs Act in the U.S., $50,000. Goldman Sachs is issuing, you know, credit cards called Marcus. Um, uh, As as the investment world goes a bit more retail-focused, growth of wealth managers as well, um, that will drag the technology faster. Uh, and the other, the other uh, future trend is, um, sim- on a similar note, is uh, to, to what, at what, this may sound a bit crazy, but think about it for a bit, at what point will the internet giants jump into financial services? Uh, you've got incredible brands like Facebook, um, I was going to say Twitter, but I don't like the thing, so I won't mention it. But let's call it Facebook, uh, Google, amazing brands, uh, billions of users. Now, if they got involved in alternative asset management, uh, one, it would be over, it would be uh, some real competition. Uh, but in addition, they'd want smaller bit sizes, uh, and that's going to mean more blockchain-esque type um, and digitally enhanced and flick of a switch, you know, mobile phone, just flip it on and uh, on the tube and trade if that ever works again and, and, and trade trade the trade the alternative unit there and then. So I think the future is uh, very interesting in this area, um, for sure. And, and, and it's Anthony here, just to just to also add. And I think a lot of a lot of that would also uh, depend a little bit on how regulation develops around facilitating these alternative asset types as well uh, to make it more beneficial. Uh, from an investment perspective, um, too. What about the, what about Martin? What about the real estate uh, fund side? Um, do you think uh, that that's 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 going to um, get more get growth in the next uh, year or so, or, or um, do you think it's more going to be in the private debt, private equity side from your from your business? Um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a good question. It is, of course, I'd say early, early days, but. We've definitely seen, you know, those with good track records and experience. Um, oh, I'm getting the call. Uh, good track record and experience, you know, able to look at the opportunities that are arising uh, because of this. And I think um, talking to some of the, the clients that we have, uh, you know, they're looking at this as potentially a really good vintage year this year and next uh, for funds that they're raising within within real estate. Um, a lot of that will be opportunistic, no doubt, um, depending on where people have got to on structuring of existing legacy deals. So, yeah, remains to be seen. But I think, you know, private credit is well established now. Um, no reason why that should be slowing down. I think uh, certainly there will be some scrutiny and some changes around um, covenants that we've seen becoming lighter and lighter uh, over the years, as we did in the run-up to 2008, uh, which then got tighter post-2008. Um, but yeah, no, no reason for that to, to slow down. I mean, from just from from the Corian's perspective on that, um, is I'd echo what Martin's saying there. But um, also, we, I mean, we'd expect um, certain restructuring activity, um, and whether that's you know liquidations or uh, things changing hands because of covenant breaches or liquidations or what have you, uh, some of that activity to pick up again eventually. But that's probably I would say uh, in the medium term. Not necessarily, not necessarily right now. How about a quick question, Matthew, for you, I guess, uh, on the hedge side of things? Because mm. uh, that's, that's really an area for us. You know, we're not, not a huge uh, hedge fund player at all. Um, wh- where do you see things for, for hedge fund managers, um, given it's been relatively flat over the last few years? 
Yeah, I mean, hedge funds haven't had a great time since the GFC, it has to be said. Uh, uh, and there's you know, been various reasons given around uh, you know, the volume of quantitative easing, but therefore the lack of volatility, the strange markets, um, obviously the growth of passive funds, which just track indexes and index huggers. And, and uh, so actually AUM in, in hedge fund managers is, out has underperformed against certainly private equity and obviously underperformed against uh, private debt in the last 10 years since MG Hudson's been in existence. Uh, certainly the return of volatility earlier this year uh, was a good time for, um, sounds a bit like making hay when people are unhappy, but it was a good time uh, for hedge funds um, and some of them did well. Uh, We've seen some hedge fund, new hedge fund uh, launches, but by established managers, because your point, Martin, earlier about how established managers are ga- gathering more AUM. So established managers have raised funds very quickly uh, to take advantage of market difficulties. Um, but the recent flood of, let's just call it QE, uh, in the last few weeks by central banks has somewhat um, done the the right term, flatten the market or smooth the market or um, and therefore some of the advantages, I suppose, which hedge funds can have in, in dislocated markets or in vol has, has reduced. Um, uh, but I think hedge funds will, you know, I always, I hate to stay, but I think the bigger managers have raised the AUM. It's interesting that the man group, um, main product has done pretty well in, this, in the last few months as well with the market volatility. Uh, so I, th- I think they'll raise money. Uh, we Some of our clients are raising money, um, but the volatility has died away a bit for the moment. Um, and you've got to differentiate yourself in hedge. If you, if you can't beat the passive tracker, uh, then you shouldn't really be in existence, um, frankly. Uh, so, yes, I think uh, hedge has had a slightly um, – sounds a bit – Grim Reaperish, isn't it? But had a uh, had a, had a good year so far. Yeah. And, and Matthew, if I can just ask a further question on that, are you have you seen uh, like um, hedge funds just changing their strategies given everything that's going on, just to I suppose maybe um, capture some of the potential upside uh, that they might see? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, definitely, Martin. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, they have. Uh, they, they've. Um, it's not necessarily changing strategy. It's more because of their open-ended nature, because of the way they can flip in and out so quickly. Uh, they're raising um, money in side pockets or or new funds for, for different strategies or variations of strategies. Um, mm. So obviously things like you know global arbitrage. I mean there isn't M- there isn't any M and A's. So, uh, but but if you um, there's also been a rise of just the classic long short. Uh, product as well. So, yeah, I mean, we're not super big in hedge, but we have a reasonable hedge side, and it has been, I've been allocating, you know, reallocating some resources uh, from um, more the sort of RE infra side, more into hedge in the last few weeks. Gents, hello, it's uh, Michael. Sorry, I, I fell off there, but I'm back on now, and we are still uh, live. Could I just ask one question? We, we were doing quite well without you, Michael. Yeah. Uh, we, we, <laughs> were, we, ga- we were gathering away and, you know, yeah, asking each other questions, and I we had no idea if anybody's listening or not. Transcript. Yeah. <laughs> 
could I just ask, the, what, the one question I had in my mind was a bit of data I saw about a week ago from Convergence. Um, I, I don't know if you look at their data or not, but it was suggesting that there was a static self-administration rate between 2018 and 2019. So it was about 25%, and that rate didn't go up. Now, I think we're all used to hearing about the concepts of the drive towards outsourcing. Now, I think if you think about that in terms of public sector, whenever things are challenged or constrained as they are at the moment, you would think that would drive outsourcing even more. But in the public services example, it generally doesn't happen because people feel less comfortable about making a risky outsourcing decision uh, in, in, in times of stress. So we've been, according to the, the convergence data, static self-admin rates for the last two years. How do you think that number will go as COVID develops over the next sort of one to, to three years? Um, if I can take it first. So I think you're referring to the U.S. data, Michael. And I think um, it is U.S., yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, you know, I think when we were going on the road talking about our U.S. deal back in 2016, um, even then, you know, the, the discussion was around this wall of outsourcing that was coming uh, from the U.S. Um, and, you know, I think the reality is there has to be a very good reason, uh, particularly in the closed-ended world, uh, to, to do it. And in the U.S., it's not a well-established product yet compared to the likes of the state streets uh, and the Northern Trust on, on the open-end side. Um, so effectively what you're saying to a local uh, CFO in an asset manager is to hedge your bets with uh, an administrator who's probably not massively bigger than you at the, at the moment in the US. Um, and, and it's Turkey's voting for Christmas to, to a large extent. And without the drive, uh, as, as Matt said, you know, in terms of regulation in Europe, that we've seen over the last sort of 15, 20 years, there is nothing to force people to do it. Now, what we are seeing in our U.S. business is that it's becoming more and more apparent, again, largely through technology and requirements for data analytics and, and more involved requirements that investors have and therefore general partners have, um, that this is becoming very difficult and expensive to invest in your own platform. So, but the expectation is still that this continues to move. There will always be um, a number of asset managers who choose to do things internally. Um, but I think certainly from my own experience, having been on that side of the fence, when it gets to the point where, you know, your business is now almost as big in the support function as it is in the job that you're paid to do by investors, you start to have to think about why you're doing that. Um, because a, a lot of these um funds take a lot of administration, particularly with the greater uh, information requirements, um, as well as kind of, you know, to Anthony's point, being in the right places. So we're seeing a lot of outward investment from, from the U.S. as well. So you're going to have to have administration capability outside of the U.S. And we're seeing some of those U.S.-centric firms investing into Europe uh, in our industry to accommodate that. So, you know, I think the direction of travel is still the same. Um, I think looking from one year to the next won't always give you a good a good picture. Um, but post-COVID-19, I think it will just add to the impact of having that global resilient platform. Yeah, yeah I, I think, think I'll just add, I'll add on top of that that um, goes to Peter's point, uh, Peter Bates' point, uh, which is that the need for investors for reporting and benchmarking and comping and um, is is going to lead it leads to you know, more administrative support um, rather than less. Yeah, 
and also I think uh, you know, yeah, looking only at one or two years of, of data points is is quite dangerous sometimes. I think the trend is is the important one, but also if you if you look at uh, COVID nineteen etc. and you know what the world will look like afterwards, I think many many organisations out there will be looking at how they preserve and reduce their cost base and focus, I think, more on what their core skill is. Uh, and as a result of that, I would expect, you know, people to start thinking, well, actually, the support function it probably doesn't belong with me. I can outsource that and let someone else do it. James, that's great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I've, I've only got one question from an investor which has been emailed to me and, and there are no further questions queued. So if we could just very quickly skip through this last one. I think it was building on uh, Matthew's comments about Facebook. Um, and the question is, what about the consultants and the the, um, the registrars, so businesses like Accenture and Link? Do you see their competitive movements changing uh, over the next few years? Uh, meaning competing with on the alternative side, or or uh, yes, yes, in 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 your own businesses, um, possibly. Um, I mean, from my perspective, then uh, I'll let the other two answer. Uh, from MJ Hudson's perspective, because we're more for holistic offering, um, it would take a fair bit to compete head on with us. Uh, sounds a bit cocky, but. Uh, uh, I sort of half believe it anyway. Uh, so um, there's a lot of skill, uh, but seriously, there's a lot of skill in alternatives. Uh, there's a lot of skill. I mean, I've been involved in the alternative industry for 33 years now. Uh, and as you nicely pointed out, Michael, I wrote the leading textbook on the fund structures. So there's a lot of knowledge in, in, in people. There's a lot of knowledge in um, also what Martin and I were talking about earlier, the data side and the analytical side. So to suddenly tilt in our direction, yeah, throw a lot of money at it. I'm sure you could probably do it. And there, are, there are, you know, uh, but I think the barriers to entry are a bit like our clients themselves. They're coming more sophisticated. I think the support side is coming increasingly sophisticated as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know we haven't seen any of them do this, Michael. Um, and yes, of course, people could enter the market. I'm just not sure that they have the appetite to do so. Um, you know, what we do is. Is specialized, that's true. Um, there is a big investment required in the footprints, as Anthony suggested, of course, the technology uh, as well, um, and really the, the management and the will. And I think where certainly the three firms we have here today have been successful is the fact that some of the larger institutions where they did offer these services, you know, it's not really a focus for them. You know, Accenture will always be a leading consultancy firm. Um, you know, if they did enter fund admin, you know, it's not going to be a core product, if you like. Um, so for us, it's very much a core product, uh, and we're going to focus on the quality. That's great. So I can't see any more questions. So thank you so much to Martin, Matthew, and Anthony for your time today, and thank you to everyone for participating.